Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Normally I'd ring the bell, but you know, nobody wants to wait for that. Um, let's pray. We're in Psalms chapter 25 today. Let's pray before we get started. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for just the time to, uh, to just seek to understand more of you. We pray that as we open up your word, that you would uh, speak to us each individually. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, Psalms 25 is one of the, is the first acrostic uh, in the whole Psalter. There are actually seven acrostic Psalms, which is basically consecutive uh, uh, Hebrew letters. Each verse runs with a new Hebrew letter. Um, the next one will be uh, Psalm 20, you, know, you start with 25, 34, 37, and then 111, 112, 119, and 145 are all acrostics. So when you read those, you don't, you're not going to get quite the same effect just reading them in English. Um, I'm not going to focus too much on that today, but it's something you should be aware of. That it's it's very poetic in what it, in the way it's written, and it's intended to be there. So, it is a, a penitential, penitent psalm, um, probably written about the time of uh, the rebellion of Absalom. Um, but some have suggested that this psalm is designed uh, to teach discipleship. Um, so as we read it, you'll you'll get a lot of that. It deals with faith and fellowship. Uh, There's a plea for wisdom and guidance and protection and forgiveness in the midst of everything. And then there's this back and forth with um, prayer and contemplation and meditation throughout the psalm. But let's just jump into it. Uh, This is Psalm 25. uh, Verse 1 says, A psalm of David, to thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh, my God, in thee I trust. Don't let me be ashamed. Don't let my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for the Lord will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. You know, Spurgeon said, True prayer may be described as the soul rising from the earth to have fellowship with heaven, yet very often the soul can't rise. She's lost her wings and is heavy and earthbound, more like a burrowing mole than a soaring eagle. At such dull seasons, we must not give over prayer, but must, by God's assistance, exert all our power to lift up our hearts. Let faith be the lever and grace be the arm, and the dead lump will yet stir. Faith is the cable which binds our boat to the shore, and by pulling it, we draw ourselves to the land. I think that's a nice overview of what's going on. David starts with this idea, I trust you, Lord. Don't let me be ashamed. He goes on to ask for protection, for confidence, and concludes that that trusting the Lord in, in, in the way that he trusts, it requires that he have patience. 
That's the key to what it means to trust the Lord. That we are patient. We understand that it's not our timing. It's not when we think it should happen. It's in his time and in his will that things need to be going on. And so Derek Kinder, Kinder writes, to wait is to accept his timing and therefore his wisdom. Trust is eager waiting in hope rather than in resignation. Because often, sometimes we get that idea where I'm, you know, I'm, I've just passively trusting God as opposed to hopingly entrusting ourselves to the Lord. There's a difference that we don't just say, oh, whatever happens, happens. We trust that what happens is in his will and his timing. And that's a very different thing. And, and we need to be careful that, that that nuance is clear when we entrust ourselves to the Lord. Um, Isaiah, that we just read, says they will wait on the Lord, will renew their strength, right? That's the pretense that we're trusting the Lord. We're waiting on him. But interesting, uh, it also, in a, a New American Standard, writes it, they will gain new strength. And I think that, that that's an interesting uh, rendition or, or translation of the word. That it's not just that you'll renew the strength that you have, but that you will gain a new strength from him when you trust in him that you didn't have before. And I think that's the key of this renewal of that whole verse, that when we trust God, it changes and empowers us in a new way. For David, his trust in God kept him from shame. It was the means to not be in shame or not be condemned by these people while on the other side, the enemies, ultimately, it would be their behavior that will become their shame. As it says in, in verse 3, that indeed none of those who wait for thee will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. It's their action. Verse 4 going on says, make me know thy ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truths and teach me for you are the God of my salvation the God of my salvation for I trust thee and I wait all day long turning his attention from himself to God is part of the key he understands that the means to faith is focusing on God's character because that's who he is. God is revealing himself. The question becomes, are we willing learners of what he's teaching? And what that implies is that we have to recognize that we don't know everything. We have to trust him, that he's in control. 
That is what faith ultimately means, entrusting all of it to him. He prays, open my eyes to see. Help me, Lord. Show me where you're going. Teach me how to do as you're doing. And lead me, and I'll follow. That's what it means to be discipled. To be shown how to do what you're doing. What, what is right. What is holy. We don't naturally know that. We know what feels good. And we need to be taught and shown and led. And we need to be those who are teaching and showing and leading as well. In our own behavior. Christ told the church, go out and make disciples. That's your call. You are to be the imager of Christ. Leading in right behavior. Leading in in right teaching leading in in just just righteousness that's the call but we have to keep our eyes on Christ first or we can't do that and we won't do that unless we understand that we aren't perfect you know hebrews says the mature, Hebrews 5.14, the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. There is a behavior of practice, a continuing action where we are following Christ and his example to be, what James says, doers of the word. Not just hearers. You know, we can ask him to teach us, but unless we're led and follow and do, it's kind of pointless to learn. You know, we talk about a lot of people have a lot of head knowledge, but they have no action. And that's unfortunate. I think, therefore I am, becomes I believe, therefore I act. And that's the distinction between a Christian and someone who is just voicing Christ and saying, oh, I follow Jesus. I'm a Christian. They're actually following through with it. And I think we need to examine ourselves. Are we following through with what we say we believe? Sometimes we don't. Trusting him in his timing and his will, we are longing for salvation. And for David, he was longing for Messiah. I wait all day, all the day long for his salvation, his timing, his perfect will. But I trust you with it because I know that you're faithful. Verse 6 says, Remember, O Lord, thy compassion, thy loving kindness, for they have been from old. Don't remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to the loving kindness, according to thy loving kindness. Remember me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. 
remember who you are, not who I was. And I think that's the beautiful thing of what Christ has done with gospel, with not just the gospel, but with salvation. He remembers who he is, not who we were. That's what forgiveness means. That's what grace is all about. It's letting go of that past. And for us, sometimes we still wallow in that past. And he says, let go of that. Move on. Because I am doing this so you understand my loving kindness. That's what he wants to be revealed. He wants to be the object and illustration of what it means that God is loving kindness. You know, I was listening to uh, the uh, the Asbury revival that's happening and listening to that opening sermon. And one of the, one of the main teachings that began that, one of the main points that the man that was teaching made was we need as the church to understand what it means to be loved by God so that we can love like he loves. And I think that's, that's very true. We forget that it is for his loving kindness that we receive mercy, that we receive grace. So he can reveal himself through the way he behaves towards us. So that question remains, is that your experience of him? Have you experienced the loving kindness of God in your life so that you can be that to the world? And if you haven't, I challenge you, ask for it. Verse 8 says, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. You know, instruction involves a correction. Not just teaching, but sometimes it needs modeling and illustration. And we have that in Jesus. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in the sin. How do you love people? After they're out of sin or while they're still in it? Because that's where God loves people. While they're in the sin while they're hurting, while they're struggling, that's where he meets us, at the cross. What did he say at the cross? Forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. That should be your heart. People don't know what they're doing. Our heart needs to be a forgiving heart. And that's what God's calling us to. Hearts that meet people where they are in their sin as they're struggling, not expecting them to be changed immediately, not expecting them 
to be different like we have become because Christ is changing us, but meeting them where they are. These sinners are not to be confused with the wicked who are habitually proud, but they're honestly humble seekers looking for change in their life. They see that this world is messed up and they want to see a change. There is a seeking going on in this world. On the other side, there's a pride going on in this world. And there's a balance between the two. And we need to be careful that we don't become those of pride. To be truly led, we have to be humble, trusting that he knows best. God's way may not seem loving. It says, God, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners. Um, He leads the humble in justice. He teaches them. For sinners, God's way doesn't always seem this loving thing. Or even true. Because they're in rebellion. They don't believe, yet even in his anger, in his wrath, he is acting in a way of love for those who love him because he is purifying the world, even with us. When he corrects us, it doesn't seem pleasant. We don't want to be corrected because we think we're right. And it doesn't feel amazing. But looking back, the things that he's corrected, I'm so glad that he did. Because I needed it. Why does he do it? For thy name's sake, O Lord, verse 11, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. David never claims to be sinless. He recognizes this burden of of just imperfection. And often people will respond, hey, I'm not perfect, but I'm a good person. I'm okay. I'm not bad. David was a really good guy. I mean, he had the opportunity to kill Saul who was trying to kill him how many times? And yet was gracious in that? We don't have a lot of people trying to kill us today. But David recognized he was still a sinner. And his offense against God was great. And it was accumulative throughout his life. And we all need that grace that he is praying for. And we all should be asking for it. We come to this place and we say, oh, God's forgiving, God's gracious. And then we forget to ask, God, forgive me. We forget to confess, I messed up. And I need forgiveness. Not only from God, but from each other sometimes. 
We need to be people that ask consistent with what we're praying. Forgive me. What did Jesus say? To the measure you forgive, you will be forgiven. Where does it start? It starts with your heart. How do you become that forgiving person? You first have to be forgiven. Verse 12 says, Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul shall abide in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the land. What does it mean for your soul to prosper? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, we, we talk about the prosperity gospel and prospering financially and prospering, you know, in, in these physical ways, what does it mean for your soul to prosper? In this context, I, I really think what he's talking about and saying here is that your soul will be in constant and consistent growth and maturing into his image. That's the spiritual growth. That's the soul's growth into the image of the one and what you were created to be. We'll abide. It will be a continued action of God changing you into him, into what he created you to be. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That That was prepared way before you became saved, before the grace was offered to you. He prepared those works for you to walk in. He had a plan to lead you for his name's sake and for the sake of others around you to do good works. For David, his descendants had been promised the land. It says his descendants shall inherit the land. And, and the reality is, as we walk in those, our children receive a promise. They receive good parents. They receive stable lives. They receive security that we provide for, for our families. Because we're following Jesus. But the opposite is just as true. Sorrow and grief overshadow children when the parents are abiding in pride that they think they're right. They reject God. And so we need that guidance to guard against ourselves becoming destructive to our children to our families, to the people in our lives. So we can abide in prosperity. 
not just for our souls, but for those around us so that they can prosper too. The secrets of the Lord, verse 14, the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and he will make them known, know his covenant. NIV reads this. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He confides in those who fear him. Amos 3, 7 says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. And there are many things that are a mystery to us that we just don't understand. And faith empowers us to overcome those just not knowing. We trust God that he knows. On the other side, and at the same time, as we seek him, as we trust him, he reveals things we never could have understood before. And he does that for his glory. Proverbs 25 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. But it's the honor of, of kings is to search it out. If you are a child of the king, you in, that's, that's your uh, inheritance to become the king who searches out the matters of God that he's hidden for you to search out. The Revised Standard reads, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. John 15, 15 says, Jesus says to the disciples, no longer do I call you slaves, for slaves don't know what their master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of heaven, is what Mark 4.11 says. You've been given the mystery so that you can live it out. The image of God. Craig Broyles says the covenant is not a mere document to be read but one with which Yahweh himself acts as a tutor. In effect takes the believer into his confidence and thus teaches him. Are you being taught by the Lord today? Because that's who he is. He created us to teach us to follow him. Verse 15 says, My eyes are continually towards the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. We're surrounded by traps. There's all kinds of issues that we can get ensnared with. But as we keep our eyes on the Lord, we find that those entanglements are stripped away. Even when we are entangled, we find him meticulously removing those knots you know the image I get here is you know fixing the necklaces of the girls bring you a necklace and it's this little bitty knot and you're just like they're like I can't do it <laughs> and you're like okay let me take my time to address this little bitty knot 
that's frustrating you, and I care about you enough to take that time. That's what God does for us. He looks at those little entanglements that we get ourselves stuck in, and he works them out so that that necklace can now be used for his, uh, to glorify you. There's an aspect of that in which we participate in not getting ensnared to start with. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. What did 15 say? My eyes are continually towards the Lord, and he'll pluck me out of the net. If I'm laying aside those things, I do that by fixing my eyes on him to start with. In both cases, the point is, where is your focus? When you're running, where's your focus? You run forward. If you keep your head down, you slow down. When you keep your focus on the goal, you can run with endurance. Verse 16 says, Turn to me, be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of this distress. And often people get to that point where they're alone in their problems. Depression, anxiety are, are not uncommon. And for David, it wasn't either. David constantly dealt with the struggle. But the exception, the defining difference is how he addressed it. For David, he recognized God as his companion through the trouble, in the midst of the storm. Addressing his loneliness through fellowship with the Lord. Seeking out guidance, seeking the one who endured all affliction and overcame it. That's where his eyes are fixed. Verse 18 says, Look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. David recognizes that some of those afflictions that he's facing, some of the troubles that he's in are a result of his own stupidity, his own sin. And we need to recognize that some of the issues and situations you get yourself in are because you got yourself there. And you need to ask for forgiveness. Forgive all my sins. Verse 19 says, Look upon my enemies, for they are many. They hate me with violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Don't let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in them, in thee. 
let integrity and up un, uh, uh, let integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for thee interesting David knows there's lots of people around him that are messed up that hate him and he doesn't call for their destruction he doesn't look for God to judge them but he calls that God see injustice now their character is not in humility they're in hate as opposed to love and we need to be guarded from people filled with hate there's lots out there and we need to be guarded from being filled with hate because it's easy to fall into Proverbs 20 28 says loyalty and truth preserve the king he upholds his throne by righteousness this is what David's son saw of him. How was David's throne upheld? By loyalty and truth. That's the legacy that the church needs to lead, leave for the rest of the world. And we as parents need to leave for our children that we are those of loyalty and truth. There are two ways that God looks at people. Those in humility, asking for grace, become objects of mercy. And then there's those of pride and violence and hatred are those who need correction and judgment and are under wrath. Where are you? David goes on to say, redeem Israel, O God, out of all its troubles. That's the call. We need to have that heart for everybody around us. This country that we're in, this city that we're in, this town that we're in, that God redeem people. Out of all the trouble that they created and that they're in. Interesting, this verse leaves the acrostic. It's it's the only verse in the um, the psalm that doesn't to that acrostic and he goes on beyond what the letter of the law is to the heart of the law I want to be about others redeem others
for the David, he's the king. And his problems effect, have a, an effect on the people. When he acts like an idiot, the whole country gets in trouble. On the other side, when the people are not following God, it causes problems for him. We need to deal with our own issues before we can lead. And that's God's call. You need to deal with yourself first. Before you start looking at all the messed up things in this world, because there's a lot, you need to deal with your own. You need to admit you are not perfect. You are a sinner. And you need to ask honestly for forgiveness for your rebellion against him. What did Jesus say? Take the plank out of your own eye before you try to address the problems around you. We need to deal with our own issues so that you will be able to lead others in righteousness. So the question becomes, do you need to call on God to forgive you for something specific today? And are you ready to do that or are you going to stay in pride? Father, we thank you that you are the God that loves us, that meets us in our need and meets us at the cross where we don't know what we're doing. And you claim forgiveness for us despite who we are and what we're doing. Give us that heart for the people around us to meet them in their pain, in their sin, to love them despite what they've done to us and what they're doing to others, to forgive like you forgave. Give us your heart this morning. Lead us to be faithful to you and to love the world as you have loved it. In Jesus' name.